Blog Talk Radio. Quiet, please. Movie Beat, conversations with filmmakers where we discuss everything film and television. Here on Movie Beat, you'll learn what to do and what not to do when it comes to making movies and TV. We will talk to everyone behind the scenes and in front of the camera, and I will provide you with guests and information you're going to want to have, whether you're a filmmaker or a fan. And so now let's move behind the scenes here at Movie Beat. First, I want to thank all of my listeners who have tuned in, those who have joined me in the chat room. The chat room is now open. And the readers of the Movie Beat blogs uh, for spreading the word about Movie Beat to all your friends and your industry connections for your emails, your phone calls, your feedback, and your support. The official website is rexsykes.com. That's R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S.com. Movie Beat's really designed to be a resource for you, and that is why I connect you up with professionals who are making it happen. So please go ahead and retweet Facebook, MySpace, these interviews. Go ahead, post them anywhere you like, good taste prevailing. Uh, use common sense. This is a free resource for you. But when you do that, you support my guests, the professional filmmakers who are sharing their expertise with you so that you can more efficiently uh, make your products and get them, get them out there. So please uh, go ahead and spread the word about Rex Sykes Movie Beat and each and every one of my guests, the articles, the cast and crew listings, the, uh, the, the rants, the raves, the hot news, the hot and fun. All the different blogs have different information for you. There's uh, events, premieres, networking, uh, festivals. There's uh, cast and crew listings. There's articles about our biz and what's going on currently, how it's changing. There's uh, my rants, which is just about anything I feel like discussing. Go there and read that. There's save incentives, which discuss incentives around the country, uh, but focus quite a bit on the incentives in Wisconsin. Um, so go ahead and and, uh, and uh, subscribe at the welcome page to Rex Sykes Movie Beat. Use the RSS feed button right there on the welcome page, and then you'll have all that information uh, as it changes on the website. Keep in mind, if you're listening to this live, that there are a hundred other great interviews archived right now on the website at the interviews blog. Simply go in, click on the name of the guest that you want to listen to, and if it's got a nice big bold link that says to listen here, you know, click bolded link, uh, go ahead. If it says upcoming, well, then they haven't had the interview yet, have they? So, uh, But there's great guests coming up. I'm going to talk about them in just a few seconds. Uh, but also, you can join us on Facebook at the Rex Sykes Movie Beat fan page, or at the Rex Sykes Movie Beat group, and please do. There's also a group there on Facebook that, uh, if you're a Wisconsin resident, we certainly want you to join. It is called uh, Wisconsin Film Jobs. Keep Wisconsin Film Friendly. That is on my profile page. Now, I'm an L.A. guy, and I miss L.A. every day, and I think that all the movies that can be done should be shot in Los Angeles, but for those that can't, and they have to go elsewhere. We certainly want Wisconsin to be in the running for that, and uh, I'm doing everything I can personally as well with others to, to ensure that that does happen. So we want to keep Wisconsin film friendly, uh, and we hope your states are as well. So uh, you can follow us at Twitter. Rex Sykes Movie BT is the Twitter address. That's R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S. 
M-O-V-I-E-B-T. It's abbreviated. Be sure to, uh, to check into that. Before I bring on my guest today, I'm going to list some of the upcoming guests. Peter Marshall, who's done our first assistant director series, is back with us. He's a director, and he's doing our first I mean, he's doing our director series as well. Eric Morris, acting coach and author of uh, numerous books, will be here after him. Kenny Johnson, the actor from The Shield and Saving Grace and, and numerous other TV shows and movies, is coming up right after that. John Paul Rice is a producer. He will be back talking about, he will be here talking about his movie. Eduardo Ballerini, uh, he's an actor from Dinner Rush, from No God, No Master. Terry Green, recent uh, guest on the show, the director of No God, No Master, Heaven's Fall, and Almost Selena's. Uh, Sam Whitmer was on the show as well. Um, we've got the first AD, Curtis Smith, coming up. So uh, a lot of great people that way. Juliet Landau, uh, Drusilla from Buffy the Vampire Slayer will be back. Sam Oster is going to return. Rocky Lang is an author, producer, and director. You know him best from uh, the movie White Squall, which he produced. Uh, Patrick Giraldi is a sound recording, re-recording mixer. Uh, Danielle Eskenazi, casting director, will return. Uva Bull, producer-director, is coming uh, at the end of March, as is John Cowley. He's a visual effects supervisor from District 9 and uh, the Twilight Saga Eclipse. So uh, be sure to listen in to our guests. And now I turn my attention to the guest today. You probably know her best from finding, developing, and producing the box office sensation Collateral, which starred Tom Cruise, Jamie Foxx. It received two Academy Award nominations, two Golden Globe nominations, and received the Critics' Choice Award, along with 23 other nationally or internationally sponsored honors. Her name is Julie Richardson. She's a producer and managing member of Imaginarium Entertainment Group. And as of uh, 2008, she has been in post-production for The Midnight Man for Dimension, uh, the first in a three-film horror franchise, and is producing a comedy pilot, Nice Girls Don't Get the Corner Office for ABC, along with her partner at Brian Glazer and Ron Howard's Imagine Television. Uh, and there's just so much more. So let me uh, bring Julie on now, and, uh, and we will take it from there. Hi, Julie. How are you doing? Hi, Rex. How are you? I'm great. It's good to have you here. I'm thrilled that uh, you're going to be spending some time with us talking about what you do and what you love. Uh, how, how is it where you are right now? It's beautiful, and it's just an, uh, certainly an honor to join you guys today. Thank you. You have the absolute perfect voice for radio. <laughs> I have you are for a radio man too. destined for syndication. Well, thank you. I appreciate that so much. I, I, I really do. I do. Um, Julie, uh, let me ask you this. Um, you are now involved with something called V-Pipe. V-Pipe. This is, this is an opportunity for the listeners uh, of Movie Beat, far and wide, Facebook members. Uh, can you tell us what V-Pipe is? It's a contest that uh, you're uh, a part of? Yeah, V-Pipe actually is – thank you for asking about that. This is like one of my little – it's a pet project. Um, some friends of – um, that we actually met friends and film fans um, out of Silicon Valley um, are technologists, and they had created this fantastic um, broadcast and messaging application using Facebook as its platform. So it's a little like video Twitter, and it's um, uh, kind of a great broadca broadcast tool and it's you know exciting to do something that like that directly on Facebook. So they had come to me last year and asked me to be on the the board of the company, and 
help kind of put together events for them. And we thought, what what is the best possible way to use this application to kind of help spread the word? And so what we put together was a pitch contest. So all of you aspiring screenwriters are out there, or even not so aspiring, we are um, hosting free of charge, all for fun and for free, um, this uh, fabulous pitch contest where writers or producers can pitch their projects. You have five minutes to pitch your project to industry professionals via Facebook, I mean via VPipe on Facebook. You will go in, record your pitch, and uh, and then we it will be judged by truly like A-list industry insiders. We have um, Chris Lockhart who is the who is actually a longtime colleague of mine and executive story analyst for Ed Lamont. I mean, Ed, Mel Gibson and Denzel Washington don't make a movie without this guy. And he is an absolute genius. Uh, we have um, Tony Safford, who's the executive vice president of acquisitions for Fox, is one of our judges. We've got um, um, some that we can't disclose quite yet that are very exciting, but they had movies nominated this year. We have I just um, had a film come out this summer um, called The Collector, and the writers are Marcus Dunstan and Patrick Melton, um, writers and director, um, and they have written five of the Saw movies, and they're some of our judges as well. We also have agents and managers, so if you are interested in kind of expressing, you know, getting your work out into the world, expressing your talent via V-Pipe, um, we'd love to have you join us. And it's been well, fun. We've, we've had a fabulous kind of response so far. Well, that is awesome. It sounds absolutely exciting. And, and like uh, uh, a wonderful opportunity for those out there who, who are quick enough and smart enough to take advantage of it. Well, you know, the, challenge, the biggest challenge, and by the way, I think this goes just to under the life in Hollywood category, the biggest challenge is access. You need yes, you need two things. You need access and you need advocates, people who are who will be out there. Not, and I'm not talking about just representatives. I'm just in the sense of even relationships um, of people who will advocate for you. Uh, and that's certainly how people get jobs in uh, in Hollywood. That's how, you know, whenever, like, an executive makes a move, they call all of their friends at the agencies and say, look, I need you to make some phone calls for me. And they, you know, are, you know, enlisting them to be their advocates um, to, you know, score that next position. That is, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you said that. One of the tenants, or one of the many tenants of, 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 of the Movie Beat show is, is um, it's not just who you know, but who knows you. And I love the word advocate, because if you have a person in your corner and you have access to them and they have access to you, then you expand your network. You can expand it exponentially. Yeah. Because really, you know, people talk nepotism, but it's really about friends knowing the expertise of their other friends and being able to refer them that networks work. Yes. And it's also there, it, there is risk in working with people you don't know um, because there is so much at stake, um, certainly, in making a film. And by the way, it's such an as everyone here, because you have an audience of professionals, knows this to be true. 
that it is such an intensive process that you want to make that process as pleasant and as successful as possible. And so, therefore, to know kind of the people with whom you're working is essential because it guarantees um, or it certainly increases the probability of a successful effort. Absolutely. Well well put. Well, well uh, great advice for for all of us to adhere to. So, so this is an opportunity where people can can um, they can make their pitch. They can get known. Uh, they might get some fans or some advocates from it. I mean, obviously, the the people you know who who, who rise to the top will. Uh, but it, but it sounds like a great way to get the kind of exposure that people need. Well, it's a exposure. It's an opportunity to certainly to score an advocate. We've got a number of kind of agents and managers who are judges as well. And, um, the, you know, the big prize, I mean, we have some nice prizes. Like I think there's a IMDb Pro, um, uh, sub, you know, yeah, like a year subscription, some final draft software, some big script consulting. But the big prize is that if you're one of the winners, then these people, these professionals will read your screenplay. That's cool. That's and perfect. even if it's not quite finished, if you need to say, okay, you know, because quite frankly, when are they ever finished, right? Um, <laughs> right. But because we always want to, like, polish off that next draft. Wait, wait, wait. You know, there's a new draft coming out. So, um, uh, like, I had a uh, – right after Collateral came out, Sherry Lansing, who was running Paramount at the time, called me into her office. She called me and said, you know – I. Uh, I love this movie. Tell me what else you have. Come in and sit down with me. Now, this is in August, and mm-hmm. I was absolutely not going to go in there without something to sell. But it took me until November to get that together. So I kept, like, moving our meeting back because, you know, the pitch wasn't quite ready yet. And, by the way, when I went in there, I sold a pitch. Very cool. Yeah, very, very cool. exciting. Hey, well, you know, I, I, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no! It just she is just certainly one of my heroes. I was going to ask since this is a contest, and I, I don't know, is it fair to for you to give any kind of pitch tips or pitch advice or or stuff that people might need to know when they are using VPipe? Oh, absolutely! And we, by the way, Chris Lockhart, who I was just raving about um, a moment ago, and by the way, um, Rex, I'm very interested to go see your rants. I think rants are always highly entertaining. So. Uh, uh, Rex Sykes' rant can't be in anything less. So I'm sure Dennis Larry has nothing on you, friend. Um, <laughs> but uh, yes, there is. We've actually recorded a, um, a video on Via V Pi, but with Cindy McCreary, who is a very successful screenwriter, um, uh, Chris Lockhart, and myself, uh, just last week. So there's that, and I'm happy to kind of offer a few. Um, things that I think may help you, certainly in this particular pitch environment. Uh, I think the pitches certainly have to be crafted for the um, for the environment. Um, one of the first things that I think makes a pitch most, uh, if it's possible, and don't manufa- manufacture something, um, but if it's possible, if there is a personal attachment in some way, to the material, make sure you tell us what it is. Like any time writers go into pitch television, um, the first thing they tell you is what's the kind of personal attachment, because they they want to know that you can drive that story, uh, you know, along those character lines, that it comes from a very grounded place in you. True story really helps. I'll give you an example. Cindy McCreary, the writer I was telling you about, who has Julia Roberts attached to Soccer Mom and 
I believe, um, has another uh, uh, project that's just about to come out right now. Uh, she, her father, she went out with a series idea that was set in a Forest Service office. Her dad was like this chief fire engineer, kind of like this big picture plan guy. Whenever there was an emergency, they called him in. And so she grew up like on these fire lines. And so um, she set this kind of very kind of northern exposure-esque show in a Forest Service office kind of in the mountains of Northern California. And the thing that made it, um, you know, so interesting, and we actually got a lot of mileage out of this particular property, was because she went in there and said, you know, I was that kid. This is my dad. And uh, and the kind of the networks, or actually it was the other uh, production houses at the time that we were pitching to, really responded to that. So that's helpful. So if there's a personal attachment, make sure you um, um, put it out front. Second of all, if there is a world that is unique to um, a pitch, make sure you um, tell us what that world is. For instance, um, uh, there were a, there was a, one of my favorite script. I have scripts I have yet to ever produce, but you know, hopefully one day I I will actually get this movie made. It's on the 15-year plan at present. Um, is called Rose and the Americans, and it is set on um, the backdrop of apartheid. It's set in South Africa in the 1950s under an apartheid government, where um, where during this era, the American pop culture was so popular, the music, the boxing, the the movies, that there was this renaissance in the black townships of this American pop culture. So against that story, um, or against that backdrop, is the story of this jazz singer based on the life of Miriam Macabra, who um, had uh, was given an opportunity by literally an underground railroad there in South Africa um, to... Um, have the life she'd always dreamed of, and risk everything for just the chance that she might be free. Really powerful story. But see, it doesn't make any sense unless I tell you that, you know, in South Africa there was this renaissance um, uh, that was set in the black township set against, you know, the kind of violence of apartheid. So that makes it a completely different story. Um, so, so make sure you establish the world. I th- but I think also the most important things, and I'm sure Rex, this is going much longer than you had intended. Um, Enjoy. Keep going. Keep going. I love it. I love it. And I'm sure my listeners, my listeners uh, are uh, very grateful as well. Uh, those in the chat room are commenting already uh, that they are enjoying this more than one could imagine. Great show. Uh, great guest. Things like that. So excellent. So um, the other thing I think to, that's really helpful is. Uh, to make sure you tell us what the genre is and and give us a very kind of clear log line that expresses you know kind of what that what needs to be achieved and what um, what is um, preventing that goal from being accomplished like and I'm sure everyone knows uh, what a log line is but Rex if you would like to post something I've got a page on a seminar. I believe Lockhart originally gave me this, so I can't take credit for the document. But I'm happy to send it to you 
Um, but it's it's specifically on how to write it how to write an effective log line. And Great. um yeah, it's yeah, that's I'll put it, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll put it right up on MovieBeat as soon as you send it to me. That'd be great. Okay, I'm happy to do that because that is like such a powerful tool. Even in my everyday work when you're just kind of casually talking about projects, you have to have those log lines that on the projects that you're currently um, working on, like just on the tip of your tongue because you never know, like suddenly you're running into Curtis Hansen and you're thinking, huh, what an interesting idea. Um and so you want to be able to, you know, if necessary, tell people exactly what you're doing, and you never know where there's a fit because sometimes it's just really that simple. The last kind of tip on pitching that I'll give is, or two, one is if you can give a uh, example uh, to kind of help frame it for the audience, it's uh, that's always helpful. Some industry ve- veterans aren't so crazy about this, but I find it particularly effective. Because, like, I'll give you an example. I've got a um, uh, project that's based on two life stories um, uh, of the first female training, uh, first female officer in Southern California, and her training officer, and uh, who set in Inglewood in 1974. So it's kind of a female training day meets fatal attraction. So that kind of tells us everything we need to know about Uh it. Um, so those kind of this meets that, and just make sure, as uh, you know, certainly Lockhart mentioned on that video. If you happen to check out the Hollywood V Pipe Pitch Contest on Facebook, um, on, on one of those videos, Chris really mentioned make sure that they're successful movies. Like you don't want to um, uh, suggest a movies that people have never heard of because it defeats the the point of it defeats the point of making a reference. And you want to make sure that it's successful. Like, certainly when we were pitching television, we would always say, okay, you know, picture Harrison Ford. Now, there's no way Harrison Ford's going to do a television series. But it gives the kind of people an idea of who the character is, right? Um, so that's an example of how to do that with an actor. But um, uh, this would be, you know, really kind of picking two movies that are well enough known that people understand, especially if you're trying to convey a certain tone. And the other thing is do exactly what I'm not doing now, which is keep it brief. So, <laughs> I know this is like the longest explanation of pitches I've ever given. So, um, so there you have it. Well, that that is absolutely excellent. And I have a question in the chat room. I want to get to in just a second. I'm gonna I'm gonna just give a personal note. Uh, this is fascinating because my sister is a producer and a writer and a and an author. Her name is Ginny Sykes, and and she's working with a woman in in Los Angeles right now. And she's back and forth from New York pitching uh, their television pilot. And uh, with very big people in Los Angeles. So uh, they're going back and forth quite a bit. So your contest and your advice, I'm sure, uh, is extremely valuable, not only to my sister, but to all of uh, the listeners who uh, are involved in, in doing just that. And, and, and hopefully many more will have that opportunity as well. But here's the question, Julie. Is, By the uh, way, it, best it, of luck to ahead. your sister on that pitch. Well, thank you. I appreciate that very kindly. I'm sure she does, too. She's she's in yoga right now, but she'll listen to the show later. <laughs> what are the challenges of pitching a story based on historical events versus a work of fiction? I, I guess because, you know, you're doing the apartheid, the, the idea of the par- apartheid story, or, or uh, 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 well, just as the question states. Yeah. So what are the challenges of pitching a historical event versus just a, a straight-up work of fiction? Correct. 
Well, you know, the fiction can certainly, uh, and I assume they mean contemporary fi- fiction, right? I well, I, you because know, I it don't, sounds no, like the the focus of the uh, question is, you know, uh, what are the challenges of putting something in a time period? Um, I think. Uh, I think there are a couple of things. Um, the biggest challenge in pitching anything that's a period piece, and I hate to kind of let e- let anyone know that it's a period piece, because like technically, super bad was a period piece. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it, people aren't apt to make movies um, from uh, out of the out of contemporary you know, out of a contemporary setting, unfortunately, at least in the marketplace. And by the way, the marketplace is so different. I mean, seriously, like the environment in Hollywood is so different than it used to be. And I don't find, I find that actually quite exciting because it gives us so many more opportunities than just, you know, the normal um, studio route. Even 10 years ago, um, like when I set up Collateral, it was a it was a completely different business than it is now. And um, indeed, yeah, it is. Like there, you know, the studios. There's even an article in the Wall Street Journal today about, um, you know, the the rising budgets of studio films. How the you know the high cost of marketing is making, you know, the, their selection of material migrate towards their supporting their brands, um, supporting only those tentpole movies, and I'm sure everyone knows what a tentpole movie is, but it's like Spider-Man or the Bourne franchise, you know, these kind of um, uh, Iron Man, um, any of the Disney movies are servicing their brands, other than like The Hangover, that was kind of a little out of their normal wheelhouse, but they're focused on servicing those larger properties that they can capitalize on over and over in you know in in franchises because it moderates their marketing costs overall mm-hmm. um but the business has just completely changed that way and that that's what certainly the article was talking about so it's left kind of these room room for these you know smaller movies and generally unless it's an epic like gladiator um, which was clearly a period piece, you know, that that would migrate towards the tentpole film. So I guess it's really about the content of the pitch as opposed to um, the specific time period. Um, if the content seems like it's one of those kind of large, it's like a larger Viking epic, um, now that's something they may consider. Matter of fact, I think Mel Gibson is doing a Viking picture right now. Um, if it's, uh, you know, like, uh, what was the uh, movie about the Spartans, 300? Yeah, 300. 300, you know, that that is certainly a period film, but that's also a tentpole film. However, if it's Brokeback Mountain, by the way, which I would have passed on had it came to me, I would certainly have said, you must be smoking crack to think I'd do a gay cowboy movie. You know, thank God there was someone out there who said this is like so good, but I would just as a financial bet to put eight million dollars, even with like Ang Lee, you know, helming the film, I would have had no idea how to sell it. And granted, it was this fabulous picture, right? But like, but to actually um, try to sell that, there is no way I would have taken it on. So thank God that there are other visionaries out there who might do that. Um, 
but generally period pieces are a little more difficult. Now, I would say that what is a bigger determinant of whether things sell or not is genre as opposed to time periods. Um, genre films, especially with the independents right now, and I don't know how your audience works with its um, under which model it works, um, but uh, with the independents, I would definitely definitely say is genre is more important. I, they migrate away from drama because drama is much harder to sell. It's not a four quadrant movie. Clearly, if you do a film other than just for the art of it, and unfortunately, you know, it's a business about commerce. Um, so if you do something other than for the art, you have to kind of consider how do we appeal to the most broad audience to, you know, certainly recoup the money for the people who took the risk on the film. And by the way, I have one quick side, night, side note to say to all young filmmakers out there, um, or even not so young filmmakers. I was at Sundance once on, and listening to one of their filmmaker panels, and there were, I wish I could remember, well, I should probably should not, who all was on the panel, but I will not certainly state this person's name, but it was a young female director, who, and someone had asked her the question, she's like, well, you know, I don't care if we go over budget, I don't, you know, it doesn't matter about this, like, we've got to, you've got to hold to your vision now, holding to your vision certainly is very important, um, and then she said, and then someone said, well, but what about your investors? She was, she said, she used the F word, I will use the S word, which is she said, screw the investors. And I thought, oh, God, like I will never work with that person. Like it immediately took her off my list. Like you have to, if people are generous enough to help us finance our movies, the least we can do is try to strategically find a way to get them their money back. That's like the only responsible way to do. And there is more and more room for independent film now that the studio budgets are migrating towards these, you know, uh, these mega films. So it's actually left a fabulous gap for those of us who want to kind of play in the under 10 range. Very cool. Very, very cool. Um, Julie, uh, this is fascinating, and and, and certainly – Everyone in the uh, chat room is having a blast. By the way, uh, someone just said, what a great guest, Rex. I admire her work. Greetings from Germany across the pond, and it's it's fantastic to listen to this show now. Um, But somebody did ask, uh, some of us know what a four-quadrant movie is, but most may not. Okay, so the audiences, and I don't know exactly who determined this. It will be the kind of, you know, the they out there, they kind of crafted this idea. But someone um, um, cut the movie-going audience into four quadrants. And I don't know, it may have been the Motion Picture Association of America, Um, uh, which, by the way, if you haven't had a chance to kind of uh, look over their annual reports, go to their website and download them. They're full of absolutely fascinating information about the business of making movies. Um, the, and as you know, that's a, that is a nonprofit organization, so you know, it comes much, uh, 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 much, it's much closer to actually providing accurate information rather than um, you know, <clears throat> certainly biased information. But a four-quadrant movie is the, um, was uh, designed to kind of help us determine 
you know, who was watching a film. And it's very simple. I believe the dividing line is 30. So it's 30 and under. And if we drew a line, an access point down the middle, 30 and under to the left, 30 and over to the right. And then um, it's also divided, you know, kind of horizontally between male and female. So you have a 30 and under male, 30 and under female, 30 and over male, 30 and over female. And that's kind of what, you know, certainly the bigger blockbusters do is they try to bring in an audience from all four quadrants. Now, all the different quadrants definitely have their strengths. If you'll um, notice um, films that performed very well, like Alice in Wonderland had a fabulous opening weekend. God bless Tim Burton. I'm sure he was thrilled to have, you know, as Jim Carrey said at the Oscars one night, he had a very good weekend. <laughs> a friend of mine said, you know, a friend of mine said when when Ace Ventura opened up, he said, you know, it must be good to be Jim Carrey today. So. <laughs> I'm sure that was true. Yeah. Um, and so it's good to be Tim Burton today. Right. So good for Tim, and it's nice to see him just, you know, knock it out of the park uh, on on many many levels, not just certainly on the box office, but um, you know, on a creative level as well. Um, but if you'll also look at movies like The Proposal, which is a romantic comedy that would mostly skew towards women, that actually went a little more four-quadrant, which is why it was a higher performer. Um, uh, you know, Dear John, almost, which performed, if you're not familiar with Dear John, it was, um, uh, I cannot remember the young man's, the, the young heartthrob's name, but I believe he was out of tw- the Twilight series, and Amanda, Amanda Seyfried, and you just knew from the poster, that was like one of those posters that you know that someone is going to die a terrible, heartbreaking death, and you're going to want to cut your wrist when you get out of the movie. And yet, like, it performed fabulously. Um, I actually called um, a friend of mine who's in marketing at Sony Screen Gems and just said, I don't know how you did that, but just, you know, congratulations, because that's extraordinary. But all the young women, that it, that happened to be a one-quadrant, maybe um, uh, it spilled over a little into the um, men under 32, but it was primarily a one-quadrant movie that just happened to like hit it right on the nose. It appealed, appealed to exactly what that quadrant wanted, and everyone showed up for that movie. That's awesome. I've I got a question I want to ask you. I need to take a short break, and then I'm going to come back with a question. By the way, it was Ch- Channing Tatum who uh, starred in um, Dear John. Uh, you're listening to Rex Sykes Movie Beat, and the official website is rexsikes.com, and we appreciate your comments and your support about blogs, articles, and conversations. Also, we love to get questions for guests in advance by email, so uh, use the contact page right there on the website. You put the guest name in the uh, header and the questions in the body, and you can send them that way. If you hear of uh, an upcoming event anywhere in the world before I do, uh, which is very likely, uh, please go ahead and email me, leaving me enough lead time to investigate it and get it up to uh, up on the website in a, in a timely fashion. You're listening to Julie Richardson, and uh, we're discussing uh, just a, a whole bunch of, about what's going on in the movie business today, about pitching. Uh, and I have a question related to that from the website. Um, but... Uh, you know, uh, one quadrant movie. I mean, we're you know, in this case, are we going to call that a chick flick? 
I mean, I, I hate to, yes. I hate to be that way. Well, it, but is is a chick flick really a one quadrant movie? Because doesn't every guy take his girlfriend to the movie, or doesn't she make sure he sees it? Um, no, not rent? necessarily. Actually, you know, there are chick. There's certainly chick flicks. You know, I'm, you know, I'm certainly not offended by that because you know sometimes I'm feeling like a chick, right? Sure, uh, as you but, should. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, <laughs> at least. But yes, that was that one. Uh, uh, Dear John was, I would say, and I'm talking a little out of school. I'm not an expert on this by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, Dear John was had such a young cast, and um, it had such a subject matter that I don't know that that would have been a date movie. Um, the proposal would have been more of a date movie than Dear John. Okay. Uh, the, yeah, I haven't the, seen Dear John, so I, I, you know, I asked out of my ignorance. Okay. No, well, no, that's fine. The, but the cast is—they're both so young. Like I think Amanda's like 21, and um, Chatting Tatum, which good score on that name, by the way, um, was—I uh, I think he's also under 25. So, uh, so what happens oftentimes? Audiences will—that um, really brought in all the teens and all the tweens, um, also because of the rating. Um, and audiences, for some reason, I don't remember whether I learned this working in television or in film, but they say that they always want to see people just a few years older than them. I think it was in television. So it kind of it hit that whole, uh, you know, kind of female under, uh, definitely under 30, I would say even maybe under 25 um, bracket. Uh, and as far as date movies go, one of the trends that I think we've seen over the past number of years um, and I say that four or five years, is uh, the male-driven romantic comedy such as Hitch that um, the uh, you know wonderful Kevin Bish wrote. Um, Hitch was definitely a male-driven romantic comedy. It also happened to star Will Smith, which instantly made it a four-quadrant movie. Um, but because it was male-driven, it had a greater likelihood of bringing in the male audience. So uh, whereas the normal rom-com audience is female, um, studios have found, and more so studios than independents, have found that if they put a male in the lead of that, that they will get a broader audience than if it's simply a female-driven romantic comedy. Interesting. Very interesting. Um I, I do. I have a question from the chat room. I want to ask you that, um, but I want to. I want to make a, an observation or a, with a question attached to it. Um, my days in Hollywood, uh, which uh, I miss every single day of my life. I don't miss the old days, but I, I miss Hollywood every day. Um, but uh, my days in Hollywood, when I as a young actor and producer, the thing that uh, struck me at that time, and maybe more so now, you know. Uh, it might strike me even more prominently now, I guess is what I'm trying to say, is that when I was, when I was 18, 17, 18, 19, trying to get into the movie business and TV, most of the stars of television were 35 or 40 you know, or 50. I mean, they were the Jim Rockfords, they were the Telly Savalases, they were the, uh, not Jim Rockfords, but James Garner. They were, right, but the right. shows were skewed. They were, they were an older kind of crap. The movies, I mean, there were a few, there were handfuls of movies, you know, Ode to Bobby uh, Old Billy Joe and, and things like that that had kid cast, but for the most part, they were you know The Godfather, they were P- Pacino movies and De Niro movies, and you know I mean they were again older cast. And then suddenly, you know uh, you had uh, 
had The Breakfast Club and you, you started having kid movies and now, you know, you got Dawson's Creek and 90210. And I mean, is there is there really like ageism now going on in Hollywood? I mean, it seems like everything is so skewed and targeted toward youth. Uh, if I remember my demographics correctly, the movie age in the 70s was, you know, who they appealed to was 18 to 39. It seemed like that was just the category of, of movie going people that they targeted. Now you've got these four quadrants and but it but it seems like that that it's a lot harder for older actors to get work and and it, does it and that's not a trend that's likely to reverse itself anytime soon i suppose but well i don't know whether um i let's i don't know whether it'll reverse itself or not but i tell you i think that and this is certainly my opinion and i'm no authority on this but um i think that that is true um and I believe that that trend has um, uh, occurred for a number of reasons. One is the cable channel proliferation. So the fact that there are so many more um, uh, channels available, so many more ways to consume content, and yes, unfortunately or fortunately, you know, this is becoming a content play rather than a film or television play because we don't want to define the channel of distribution quite yet. We want to leave ourselves open for whatever may kind of come our way. Um, and the fact that the parents, its you know, it's no longer family viewing in front of the television. Everyone has a television in their own room. You know, the number of televisions per household has increased. The number of... DVD players um, used to be video players when I was coming up with Urex, but now it's like right, right. <laughs> the, the DVD players and Blu-ray players. The number of those per household is increasing. So and the um, and what they found is that younger people, when they have that access and the ability to consume content, consume more content than people in the older demographic. That, I'm certain that that is absolutely true in my life. And there was a statistic I just heard last week that on average um, uh, people under 30 consume 10 hours of content a day. Jeez. And that's, you know, either via their computer, via their, um, and that includes music, so it could be via their MP3 player, um, through uh, uh, the television screen, you know, everything. And there was a, Brian, was it Brian Lowry had a great quote in Weekly Variety the other week, and I'm going to paraphrase, but it was something to the fact that the economics of the entertainment industry are, um, will, are completely dependent on this new four screen, three screen, four screen model. Mm-hmm. So it's literally changing the economics of the entertainment industry. Um, and so therefore it's also changed the type of content we produce in order to kind of fill those channels. And because those younger people I think are bigger consumers and they're less interested in what us older folks are doing, um, I think it has um, created opportunities for kind of younger shows. Now, the nice thing about younger shows is they can generally be produced a little cheaper. At least the above the line is uh, is uh-huh. much less than um, than trying to get James Garner and Rockford Files. What a great show that was! Sure. Yeah, um, but you know, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Please finish, and then I'll, I'll, 
I mean, just all right here. I was just going to say, based on what you have just said, if you have your finger on the pulse of the business, then you can tailor your product to the market because you know you need to know what the market is. And so if you're inclined, if you go, you know, I like youth-based pictures and I can produce those and I've got a great story, then then you're ahead of the game. I mean, you can see it as an opportunity. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I think it's important uh, for us as filmmakers to do just that. Like if they're, you know, you certainly want to make product um, – meaning content or entertainment product, be that television, film, shorts, mobisodes, whatever you're doing, you know, for a specific audience. And I think it's interesting right now because so many, I I feel like, and I challenge everybody listening out there, please tell me, because I I, I don't know what it is yet that we are not thinking of. There's got to be a different revenue model that we haven't come up with yet. You know, there's the basic, you know, kind of certainly subscription model, like the way we pay for our cable um, and satellite subscriptions. Um, There is the advertising model, which is the way, you know, the networks pay for the content they produce, which is not working. And... um, uh, and I don't know what the I don't know what the other models are that we're not thinking of. So, um, so I think the opportunities that we have to kind of find out what those new models are to get our um, content produced, um, and the number of outlets that we have to get our our content out into, you know, a the the world marketplace, you know, because there's so many ways to do that, is really interesting. And just as a quick side note, um, as inspiration to everybody, everyone out there, there was, and I wish I could remember her name, but I can't. There's a fabulous comedian I saw at one of these kind of new media conferences recently who is producing a show that is 100% um, inspired, 100% financed by IKEA, and she literally oh, wow. isn't that interesting. It's literally a throwback to the old days. but she, um, And the way they did it was they set the show within an Ikea store. So she works at Ikea. Oh, cool. And, and it's, um, she writes and helps pr- produce the show along with a few other folks. They have a kind of a shoestring budget, but she brings in all her friends. Like, you know, she I think they did 12 or 14 episodes. She has, like, Jeff Goldblum and... You know, all of her, like, everybody works for scale, too, and it may even be Internet scale, so I'm not sure kind of what that is, but that's, I'm sure it's cheap. And um, and they come, they come together to kind of do the show just really for fun, but it's turning into a business, and, you know, it is 100% financed by IKEA. Wow. Wow. This show is brought to you by uh, – that's wonderful. That is when you say it's a terrific – hey, Julie, um, uh, a couple of things. One is um, – We've got about 10 minutes left, and uh, I mean, this is absolutely fascinating. I'm going to ask you right now, just you know, you, you, will you come back and do another show or two? Because uh, the people It'd be are, are pleasure. awesome. All right, and so we'll let the listeners know uh, through the website and through the shows when you're going to come back, and, and we'll take care of that when we hang up. But I want to get to this question, too, and, and that is fascinating. I want to ask this question from the uh, Internet, um, and I'm going, to give you this, I'm going to give you the question from the back to the front. Um, 
because it has to do with um, independent filmmakers. And he says, I'm asking because most independent filmmakers don't have the budget to make a four-quadrant film if they're financing uh, their films with private equity. Right. Okay, so it's an independent, so it's under 10 or under 5. Um, there's always the model of private financing, but distribution is the real challenge for independence. So the question is, is there a specific difference in a pitch for a four-quadrant movie and, say, a two-quadrant movie, specifically in the approach to the pitch is the question. Yeah, well, if it's a two-quadrant movie, don't tell them that up front. Let them figure that out, first of all. Um, the In a four-quadrant movie, just let them know up front that this is a big movie. Um, but you really, but it's always in a pitch. It's really the storyline that drives it. So you know, if you can find, you know, like even like Rose and the Americans, you know, it's based loosely based on the life of Mary Macabre, who um, was given the the opportunity to either keep her life as it was, you know, meaning her family, her lover, her, you know, the, you know, everything that was rich and textured in her life or whether she wanted to give that up for just the chance to be free. And it's like just realizing what's at stake. We see what's at stake for her, um, you know, uh, to make sure you make that emotional connection. I would say that is as important as about delivering kind of the size of the budget and the pitch because that's where you're going to hook them. Um, and just if you do have an interesting hook or a twist, um, unfortunately, and this certainly in the Hollywood V-Pipe Pitch Contest on Facebook, you have to tell them that uh, um, you have to tell them the hook and the pitch um, in your pitch. Um, but uh, I wouldn't necessarily, if you're in a meeting with a studio executive, which I hope all of you will be, um, if that's something you desire, um, I would not, you don't want to give away too much of the script up front. You can come in and discuss the project. But, you know, like Liz Glosser at Castle Rock doesn't want you to tell her anything about the project. So other, you kind of tell her ballpark, and then she's like, Stop. you know, she's a little like Diane Weist in, you know, that Woody Allen movie. Shh, shh, shh. Because she, she doesn't want you to ruin it for her. So I think there are, you know, uh, different uh, different answers to that depending on the situation in the audience. But if it's a chance to really get your material heard, like uh, in our contest, give us the hook um, and or the twist right up front, you know, right there in your pitch. And by the way, do not feel obligated to take the entire five minutes. or um, Because the truth is really good pitches, less is more. Oh, that's good advice, very good advice. And that is awesome. So in our remaining uh, seven minutes, um, I, I don't want to I don't want to turn the topic too drastically. I I, 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 I would like to spend the the remaining time uh, continuing to talk, you know, uh, about what people can do to make those connections, like using V Pipe or or say they're out and about, you know, how do they, how do they extend their network? Um, how or, or let's talk about the social networking a little bit in movies. Maybe we could we could end on that. Um, I've got a few kind of suggestions. Um, first of all, um, the real kind of rule of thumb in establishing those relationships is all right. Here, here's the good news and the bad news. Is even for me, and I have to tell myself this all the time. No one is obligated to call me back. No one is obligated to read my email. No one has to do anything. So whenever I get those responses, 
you know, I always try to come to them with just an appreciation that this person is taking their time. Even though, you know, I've been in this business for 20 years and I'm, you know, I'm an industry professional, people don't have to respond. So um, I always, it's, uh, I always think it's funny to see people who get um, kind of intolerant or impatient uh, and never take a lack of response personally. It is just simply that people are so overwhelmed and they, you know, can hardly manage the top of the phone sheets and the bottom. You know, there are some days, literally, if I'm trying to get in touch with an agent, you know, I'll call them 12 times before I can get, you know, get a call back. And that's not because they don't respect me or um, it's just that I'm on a time frame and I like, you know, Sometimes it does take a week to get someone on the phone, um, and I'll start calling once a day, and then I'll start calling twice a day, um, and then I'll start trying to schedule a call after that if I can't, if we can't seem to connect. Um, but that persistence is very important. Pleasant persistence, knowing that people don't have to do us any favors, they're not obligated to read our material. So always being gracious and appreciative when people do, and I, that applies for me as much as for anyone else. Um, Linda Obst in her one her book, and you know I'm sure there was so much in that book that was very valuable. But the one thing I remember is, and this is so true, it's like act like someone people want to be around. Um, because we all get frustrated. It never goes as quickly as we want it to go. People are glacially slow in their response. Um, so uh, even the top professionals. Uh, so just know that it, it takes time and to be patient. And um, I'll never forget, I had one writer this summer who um, – kept emailing me about her screenplay and I was had the, the collector coming out uh, when it came out like July 31st. So we were releasing that movie and uh, literally the entire producing team, we were working around the clock to help kind of get that film out because it didn't come out through a studio. We released it independently through Freestyle. And so we did all the marketing, we did all the promotion with our promotion team, but you know we didn't have like a machine to do it. And I was getting married, and I was sending my husband's son off to school all within like a three-week period. I mean, it was crazy. And she was so impatient that I wasn't paying attention to her screenplay. And I guarantee you, I wrote her off the list. And it's just like because it, that's someone who doesn't understand that they're just kind of complications. So just had she just kind of like yeah, pleasant, like if she had not demanded an answer, I wouldn't have had to give her one. And I could have eventually like gotten to her screenplay and given her the time that I felt like she deserved. So like that's something really important, I think, of just kind of understanding that everyone's overwhelmed. Um, uh, just show up and um, you know be appreciative. I know, like I just had speaking of Curtis Hanson, I had just seen him. Um, I had just sent him a script, and it just took a while to get him to read it. But, you know, it was just that pleasant persistence of, you know, thanks, just call and check in, see if you've had a chance to look at it, and know that it's going to take a couple months. You know, that is excellent advice, and and I think that people who are in the business sometimes understand that. You know, you have to have a thick skin. Oftentimes you don't hear the word no, you just never hear, you know, and and that things do take time because people are busy and, and lots of money's riding on it, and on different things and and to 
to one, you said be pleasantly persistent. I think that is absolutely valuable. Don't take it personally. You know, uh, uh, you know, keep at it, but don't don't make yourself a nuisance and don't and don't get pissed about it. I guess I mean you know more than anything. I, when I was a young actor, I mean I, I told all the wrong people all of the wrong times to <laughs> go ahead get screwed. Uh, you know, right. my acting coach at the time said you should not do that. You and so and so have like these really horrid reputations in town for being difficult and i'm like well me i'm I'm the easiest person to get along with but i would i would tell people you know you're you're full of crap using different words yeah and, um, <laughs> oh, no. so i i mean and now in in my ancient age i i i try to tell everybody be nice be sweet be pleasant you know um it is about who you know and who knows you and and you know all the old adages you know you win more bees with honey than vinegar you know, all those really do apply. So I really thank you for saying all of that. That that uh, is important. As as somebody said, you know, be respectful. They just added that in the in absolutely. And, and that's an, it, that's is important no matter where you are. Like you know, uh, kind of uh, uh, it's it's important. Like Frank Darabont, uh, a good friend, and certainly he was a mentor of mine for a long time, but also a very good friend. And, you know, it's is important for him to show up and be respectful, as it is for you know someone who's not on his level like me, right? Or the next guy. It's like uh, you know he just it's as important for him to do that too, um, because eventually people make people make note of that, and um, that's so right. You know, I think the big thing to always remember is that people's behavior is never unless you are intentionally like causing a problem. It's generally never about you. It's always about either who they are or where they are in their life. Um, and it certainly takes the pressure off of us once we know that that's just where they are, so how do I work around that situation? So, Rex, I'm with you. I just, like, fell flat in the mud numerous times myself. But good lessons learned, right? Yes, 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 and and hopefully we pass that on to the younger people so that they don't make the same mistakes. Julie, you know, this has been an absolutely fascinating hour. We really are out of time. Uh, the last comment was try to be a solution, not a problem. I like that. That's a very Fantastic. apt, apt, uh, apt. You know, when, when people know that you offer value and you are a problem solver or offer a solution to them, uh, they are much more attracted than if you are part of the problem. So that's a sound, sound advice. Julie, I want to thank you so much. I look forward to uh, scheduling uh, another one of these very shortly so that uh, people can tune in. I've got about 60 seconds left, so I'm going to have to say goodbye. All right. Thank you, Rex. Thank you so much for having me. It was very fun. Thank you so much, and it's been a fabulous hour, and uh, we'll be talking in a few minutes. But thank you, and have a great rest of your day. You too. Thanks. Uh, that is.
Hey, I think, you know what, I think I cut myself off, and I'm going to do the wrap and say, everybody have a wrap. Thanks so much, and enjoy. All the best. Until we meet the next time, that's a wrap.